I hope you've kept your Bibles open to Ephesians 2. Just before beginning, we want to thank Dr. Andrew for coming and joining us tonight and playing the organ. It's very kind to have you, sir, and thank you for helping out. Many years ago, I attended a conference, and I was sitting in a row with a number of women. And as the person was leading and opening the scriptures, he was teaching along, and suddenly I saw all these women taking copious notes. And in the middle, they stopped, and they put down their pens and their notebooks, and they just put their heads up. So during the break, I made my observation to them, and they said, well, when he started speaking, he was teaching really well. So we took notes. But then he started preaching, and we started to worship. I'm hoping that that's kind of where we end tonight, that as you look at what is often a familiar passage, you will find yourself just gathered up into worship rather than just studying the text. And there's two reasons for that. One is because this text is about our salvation in Christ. It is about what Christ has done for us because of who he is. He is the God of love. And he is our Savior and Lord. Just to recap, we started off in our study of the books of Ephesians in chapter 1. We started off with the first Greek sentence, which extends from chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 in our English Bibles. In that, we discovered that it's our God's will, his resolve, that we should appear before him holy and blameless. Now, obviously, it's not something we can achieve in our own efforts. Rather, we are very much dependent on what our God can accomplish in us through the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That led to the second sentence in the Greek, which goes from verses 15 through 23. It's an amazing prayer asking that this God may reveal himself to us intimately in all of his majesty, glory, and mercy that will culminate in the unified kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And now we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, in this third sentence, God has sovereignly acted to make us spiritually alive by uniting us with Christ. Here we see and we learn of our need for sovereign grace, our life within sovereign grace, and the gift of sovereign grace. Now Paul gives the anatomy of spiritual deadness and it's quite disquieting when you look at it. We're depicted as being influenced by another person, Satan, who led us into spiritual disobedience, verse 2, and into mindless stumbling resulting in our own spiritual wrath. This is spiritual death. Now, sometimes we confuse morality and virtue with righteousness and some type of holiness. I heard an illustration which I think helps greatly, and I don't want to discount Nobility, noble ideas and thoughts, those are and do have a place in our world. They are very uplifting and they are very helping. If we could have a picture of two mountains, altitude is morality. And some people have scaled the mountain of morality very high, higher than people on the other peak. 
But if the one mountain is in the state of sin and the other is in the state of grace, the ascent is deadly in either case. We should be very humble as Christians, not believing that somehow we are more moral. We're not. But we are redeemed. We have been saved by our God and we are now in that state of grace. Thank God. But we should never, ever look down on anyone who is in the state of sin. We were there once and that's why this is so helpful. Paul wants to remind us that where we are now is so vastly different from where we were. He uses two words, trespasses and sin. Now the word for sin, actually, it's a, it's a shooting word and it literally means to miss the mark. Someone shoots an arrow at the target, the arrow misses, that is sin. And that is how the word is used. It's failure to hit the target of life. And it's precisely why sin is so universal. It's not as though we were the only ones who have sinned. Everybody has sinned. Everyone has missed the target of what our God desires we should be and how we should live. The second word he uses, trespasses, literally means to slip or fall. It's like someone losing the way or straying from the right road. It's to... It's used for failing to grasp and slipping away from the truth. Trespass is taking the wrong road when we could have taken the right one. And yet, what we have learned so far is that we can't do that. If in chapter 1, verse 4, our God's design as our creator was that we should be before him, just live before him in holiness and blamelessness, Once we have slipped and missed that road, once we have slipped and missed that target, there is no going back. We suddenly can't recoup that and say, give me a second chance. It doesn't work that way. We have totally failed the holy God and deserve his wrath. Yet sin goes beyond the mere breaking of the law. It includes the rejection of God himself. And this is where sin gets very personal. Because it's not as though we are just saying, God, I don't like the laws that you have in our country. I'm going somewhere else. Which isn't an option. But rather, it's I don't like the laws that you have given that I should gain holiness and blamelessness. But rather, I don't like the person who has created this. I don't like the standards you want me to live up to. I don't like you. I don't love you. I have no desire to serve you. And the Bible says that's death. Spiritually, we're incapable to become holy and blameless before the holy God. Worse, some of us have been in the church for so long, we have forgotten how deadly our sins are. Jerry Bridges wrote a book. The title is beautiful, it's respectable sins. I wonder how many of us dismiss our little infractions, like going a little bit above the speed limit, 
going a little bit shy on some promise we made to someone, going a little bit short on our devotion to our God, taking a little vacation from being so intense. Respectable sins. And we're dead. We're dead. We're completely dead. I had the fun of reading one commentary, uh, one commentate, one book that was written by a commentator. And in it, he had a wonderful area where he said, can you imagine going to the graveside of Lazarus in John 11, just being there, saying, Lazarus, you need to get up because Jesus is coming to help you. Lazarus, come on now. He is really a wonderful savior. All you need to do is reach out to him and he'll save you. Come on, Lazarus. If you just take the first step, he'll do the rest, I'm sure. We, 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 we wouldn't have to say all of those things because we'd know that Lazarus was dead. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he responded. He responded. You see, he couldn't have responded in his own effort. He responded because Jesus made him alive. He responded because Jesus made him undead. And that's the point. We need help. The thing is, you know, we really don't like the fact that we need help because we think we're doing okay. The difficulty of sharing the gospel is a lot of people believe they don't need help. Do you remember when you needed help? Because if you have forgotten that and if you've made some of your sins and your, some of them respectable and understandable and something to be winked at, they're not that bad, I would invite you to sit down with some people who don't know Jesus and talk to them about how their life is going. You may learn something. You may learn that you really need sovereign grace, a grace that's outside, a grace that can make you alive so that you can respond. And that's the second part, our our life within sovereign grace. I love verse four, but God. If you ever want just the shortest expression of the gospel, there it is, but God. God. It's not and God. Oh yes, we have, we have some hope. We're not completely die, dead. We have some hope and then we just add Jesus. <sighs> Life, it's, it doesn't work that way. We're dead, dead, dead. Got it? Dead. No, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to make us alive. Now here's the thing that's so amazing. He is willing. He is willing. Look at the, just the different things that we see in his mercy, verse four, in his great love, verse four, in his rich grace, five, seven, and eight, and his kindness to us, Jesus Christ came. Why does God make us spiritually alive? Paul says, because of his great love for us, God, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive. This love is not towards the innocent. 
God expressed his love to those who were disobedient, who by nature followed the ways of the world and of Satan. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion to him, while we were dead in our sins, that was when Christ died for us. Such a sharp contrast. But let me try to take this theological truth just a tad further. Let's talk about an accident, how a drunk, drunk driver causes an accident and the child is killed as a result. He will have to stand in court. He might have number of years that he is imprisoned for it, but even after he might be released, how does he answer to the parents? You see, there is no answer that that driver can give. There is nothing he can demand. There is really nothing he can ask. It is only if the parents will extend forgiveness and mercy towards a person who doesn't deserve it That's what our God has done. We were dead. But we have been restored by Jesus. Our tendency to disbelieve this full forgiveness will allow guilt to creep back into our minds, having us believe that because of what we've done in the past, God cannot and should not love us. And those words are true, based on justice alone. A holy God should not love the sinful or the sinner. Yet having dispensed his justice in the judgment on his son, our God not only delights to extend to us his mercy, but by his power, he enables us to respond to his love. So what does it look like to explain our new life within sovereign grace and the means God uses to enliven our dead soul? Paul has to make up words in the Greek. He basically takes three verbs and then he adds the compound with. You can pick them out very easily, they're right there. God has made us alive together with Christ, verse 5. He has raised us up with Christ, verse 5, and he has seated us with Christ, verse 6. When I was in college, my parents gave me the opportunity to go over to Nepal to visit my sister. It was a long trip, and after about 20 hours um, in the air and on the ground, I had a five-hour layover in New Delhi Airport. I was concerned because I had to keep sharp. I was given some wise wisdom to say, make sure you don't lose your passport. Make sure no one steals your passport. Make sure you keep that very close to you. So when I heard my name called over the loudspeaker, my name with another person, we both met at the counter and a woman there said, give me your passport. And I balked. And the other man, who was slightly older and obviously a wise traveler, just looked and he said, it's okay, she's official. And he gave his first, and so I reluctantly handed it over, and she disappeared. 
along with an armed soldier. So I turned around and this gentleman, I'll call him Mike, I've forgotten his name, but we started talking together and he said, actually, you're very lucky that they've kind of lumped you in with me. I'm actually a contractor and I'm working for the Nepalese government on a contract and they always treat me well when I come. Don't worry about her. She's going to help straighten out our tickets and our visas and make sure their passports are properly stamped. I said, oh, that's great. And sure enough, a half hour later, the woman came back and she gave us our passports and our uh, tickets and they were all stamped officially and whatever else. And I realized this is great because I'm with Mike. And then we were taken by two armed guards into this huge room and there was just luggage sitting all over the place and we were told to point, not touch, not grab, point to our luggage. So I pointed to my two suitcases and the soldiers came on and lifted them up and took them out along with Mike's luggage because I was with Mike. And then we went back to the lounge And before the flight, our names were announced and we were able to get onto the airplane first. And I was thinking, this is great. I'm with Mike. We are with Christ. We have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised up together with Christ. We are now seated with Christ in the heavens. It isn't because of who we are. It's because we're with Christ. You see, Jesus Christ chose to be spiritually dead. He chose to take our death sentence upon himself and so become dead with us that we might be made alive with him. Such love, such mercy. Since the spiritual death depicted in verses one to three, include a fearful bondage to the world, the devil, and the flesh, and only deserves divine condemnation. The rescue act by by which we are made alive implies the forgiveness of sins and the liberation from these tyrannical forces. Did you hear that? It's not just forgiveness of sin, it's the breaking of sin's control over us. Because we are in Christ, that power that has resurrected us from the dead is now available to us to overcome sin. To overcome the power of sin now. To overcome the temptation of sin that keeps tripping us up. This is such good news. Tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday for those who are in Christ Jesus.
we can start living the reality of sovereign grace today because our Christ has ascended to heaven yesterday. Now we are seated with Christ. It's interesting to have that idea of being seated with Christ. I don't know about you, ain't feeling it so far. What does this mean? It's interesting that Paul puts this in the past tense. For he is trying to tell us that we have already guaranteed have salvation. And our future is not in some cloud. It is with Christ in heaven. And already our seating is reserved. The question is, have we gotten there yet? And the answer is no, we're not in heaven yet. We're in Philadelphia. We need to understand that until our Christ has claimed the final victory, until we are at home with him, our seats will be reserved. We still need to live through the sins that still trip us up, but they do not have control over us because we are in Christ. We are in Christ and we no longer answer to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We have been transferred from the old dominion to the new reign of Christ and we do not have to succumb to the evil one's designs anymore. We'll discuss this more in chapter four. I hope you'll come back to this ongoing series. But in chapter four, verse one, we are encouraged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Boy, does that sound like double talk. Let me help you. Chapter one, verse four, we have been called to be holy and blameless before God. So, we are being called to walk, to live in a manner worthy. We'll cover that then. Now here's the other part. Do you remember how in this passage it talks about how we are going to be examples of God's grace to the spiritual powers as well as before a watching world right now? After receiving all of this love, all of this mercy, all of this grace, all of our life has now been inversed from the curse that it was under. Who is surprised that we might be our God's showcase of mercy? We should be living this reality every day. We should be celebrating it in our hearts every day. This is the strength out of which we as believers know, know and can be confident in all of the struggle we have, in all of the difficulties that go on, in all of the things that tempt our hearts. This is amazing. Just to be reminded the most important part of us 
of this is that we are together with Christ forever. Not in just the heavens. We're with Christ himself. We're not going to be in the third row or the fourth row looking at him from afar. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. Life, pardon, divine righteousness, and eternal glory are mine because I am in Christ. All of these blessings are the fruit of my union with my Savior, yet none of these is within my power to grasp or my right to claim by my righteousness. It is only because we are in Christ. We are with Christ. We are too dead to be the source of our salvation. We're too weak to be the maintainers of our salvation. We are too finite to be the eternal stewards of our salvation. Thank God for sovereign grace. And that leads us to the third part. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, so that no one can boast. I think we've kind of got through all of that. But let me just show you where Paul hammers home the reminder to us. He does it to say that this is a gift, and then he does a negative and a positive. He says, not by works, it's the gift of God. Not by works, it's the gift of God. Why? Because we tend to want to work. We want to earn. We want to show our lives full of value. Oh, please. Look at salvation. Our Christ wants to offer us eternal life. Why wouldn't we take it? Our God offers us love and healing. Our God offers us grace and mercy we don't deserve. You're going to refuse it? I don't think so. But you know, there are young believers, young people who will come up to me from time to time as a pastor and says, I I just don't know if I'm saved. Well, why would you want to be saved? Well, I really want salvation from God. Good. Good, you're wanting the right thing. But if you want it, then you're not dead spiritually. You're, you're, you're wanting it. The desire is what God has put in your heart. He's made you alive so you'll desire this. You just need to accept it by faith. This is salvation. It is to be able to accept the gift that God has given And then to live this out. We indeed are his workmanship. He has done all the work. And we, our lives, are changed just by saying thank you. Salvation is not based on works. But the good works Christians do are the result and consequence of God's new creation work. No surprise. So, let's look at some conclusions. First, sovereign grace is the exact opposite of where we came from. Let me tell you where we came from. 
Under Satan, we received no mercy, just death. Under Satan, we received no love, just death. Under Satan, we received no grace, just death. Under Satan, we received no kindness, just death. Because of Satan, we were considered children of wrath. But now, but God showed us mercy, love, grace, kindness, and we're alive, and we have been raised up with, and we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Second, this sovereign grace is personal and intimate. Have you memorized Isaiah 49, verse 16? I recommend you do it. I am trying to memorize it. Let me read it for you. Behold, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Think about that. Jesus Christ, our God, has your name on his hands. Yep, you're there. Yes, my beloved is here. Third, sovereign grace is guaranteed by our God. His character, he is immutable. He has bonded, to sell him, he has bonded himself to us in covenant love. He is engaged in knowing us. And by his spirit, he enables us to walk in a worthy manner. He enables us to love as Christ has loved us. He enables, excuse me, he enables us to walk by his spirit, chapter four. He enables us to love as Christ has loved us, chapter five. And he enables us to stand firm in the midst of persecution and troubles, chapter six, because like the saints of old, we can see the whole picture of what he is doing, not in detail, but his plan that we should be holy and blameless before him. During much of this sermon, and I didn't say it out loud, but I've quoted from Dr. Brian Chappell. Dr. Chappell has been a professor, an author, um, a pastor. He is now the clerk of our General Assembly of our denomination. And in his sermon, he finishes up with these three points where I'd like us to finish tonight. God's gracious work of salvation in our lives is so we might make known God's kindness, verse seven, with a focus on him, not on argumentation, on him, not on our fancy words, on him. Second, God's gracious work of salvation in, in, in our lives is so we may ensure, we might be ensured of our humility. It's not anything that we've done. It's not because we look good, acute, have accomplished great things. That's not the reason God chose us. It is purely his mercy that he chose you and he chose me. Pure mercy because he loved us. And third, this kind, gracious work of salvation is so in our lives 
we might be enabled to do ministry in his name. How are we going to be quiet about such grace? How? How can we not talk about this Lord? How? When we in our lives are his workmanship, how can we dare hide it? Let me give you the other side of that. How dare we hide it behind our sin? Sometimes people can't see Christ in us because of the sin we cherish and we value. Sometimes they can't see Christ in us because of the way we treat others. Change our hearts, O Lord. O Lord, aflame our minds and our hearts to grow into this amazing, wonderful grace that you have given us in Christ. Amen.